Hello and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives. I'm Kieran Bradley. Today we have something a little bit different for you. Mick and Paul will be discussing their experiences of being crime journalists in Ireland. They'll be telling us more about how they got into the industry, the joys and the occasional perils of reporting on crime, as well as the future of crime journalism and print media generally. The hope is that you find it interesting and informative, and hopefully instructive on how stories come to print. With any luck, it'll shine some light and be helpful as well to any budding journalists out there. Oh, and I should mention there's a little bit of feedback on my line for the first few minutes, but it clears itself up. In our haste to get this to you, I couldn't find my earphones, and there's nothing quite like a producer who doesn't follow his own rules. So, without further ado, here are the lads. We're doing something slightly different today. We want to give you guys a little bit of an insight into journalism, into crime journalism, and also into the the media landscape more widely, because it's obviously become quite an issue over the last few years in a number of ways. And we have two people here who have made their particular hills of beans through journalism and crime journalism in particular. So I'm really looking forward to the chat, lads. I might just start by spooling back to the beginning, as, uh, as we want to do. Why did you guys become journalists? Uh, I might start with Paul first. That's a good question. Um, I think I kind of just always wanted to be a journalist. I, I had that in me uh, from an early age. I can recall um, going to a guidance counselor in secondary school, a mandated thing where you're you're getting career advice, and um, I think I kind of wish it was. I didn't. I just said. I remember thinking on the spot. Oh, I want to be a journalist. I just had a had that kind of in me at age whatever it was, thirteen, fourteen, and I want to be a journalist. And I can recall that guidance counselor actually telling me, "No, don't do that," <laughs> and um, basically told me to go and do an arts degree uh, because if you go and do an arts degree, well, at least you'll have other options because people who go to journalism college they get turned off journalism and they 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 then that's the only option they have. That was her advice. So I actually ended up going and doing an arts degree. I, that stuck with me, and I did English and history in ucd and i floated through it and i didn't really know i mean i I, even in college i was thinking about what other options could i be a teacher but i kept coming back to journalism and uh, ultimately i uh, applied for the infamous job bridge scheme uh, which which many people uh, lambasted but it was good for me in the sense that i i got my foot in the door uh, in the tala echo uh, the local newspaper um in, in Tala and uh, covered Ballyfermot and Palmerstown and uh, Clondalkin as well. And um, I was there for nine months. I actually ended up being there for a year uh, under the job bridge scheme. It was nine months originally and then was there for the year. And that's where I got my experience. And then I got into the Indo and eventually into the Star. Um, but yeah, I just kind of always wanted to be a journalist. I just had it in me instinctively. I didn't know I wanted to be a crime journalist. But I knew I wanted to work in newspapers. I knew I wanted to get involved in the industry. Well, we'll certainly uh, revisit what brought you into crime, uh, or at least reporting on it, <laughs> uh, in a little while. But um, it's interesting that you say that, because I remember getting similar advice from uh, someone in my family who's a journalist to go and do an arts degree and then come back to it. But Mick, I'm very interested in your uh, background. Obviously, you're, you're from Belfast. You know, what was your particular route? Well, I th- one of the things I like about this pod is that I, I feel very close and connected to the listeners and I'm sure Paul does as well but that means we have to be honest so I'm going to be honest about something that happened to me looking back it had a massive effect in my life when I was 12 okay and I'm going to talk about I've never really spoken about this before my family know about it but I'm going to talk about it so obviously I grew up in North Belfast and 
when I was 12, one day, my father and I were sitting with my older, older, my eldest brother, his best mate, and his father were in the house. And I just remember my daddy sitting there and he suddenly, you know the way you put your finger and thumb up to, to make the shape of a gun? Because I wasn't listening, 12-year-old kids, now this was in the 80s, so there were no mobile phones, or I was probably reading a comic or something. And uh, he held up a gun, and I, I, all I heard him saying is, yeah, and he tried to shoot me, right? So what the, hell, what the hell was this all about? So essentially, when I was, when I was 12, 11, maybe 11, 12, my father to, I heard my father telling my big brother's best mate's dad about an attempt in his life by loyalists in 1972. So I was 18 months old. And I have to say, I've been asked an awful lot because I, you know, I, I wrote a book and was a lot of interviews I did about why I became a journalist. And I always talk about seeing the film All the President's Men when I was around the same age. And that was, that was a massive factor. But seeing if, if I'm being totally honest, me hearing about an attempt on my father's life at that age totally changed my life. And I think it actually put me, I have no doubt, it put me on the road for being a journalist because suddenly I went from a 12-year-old child to someone who became aware that there was badness in the world. He survived the murder, but it was um, he, essentially a loyalist gone man knocked on the door. We were living in a loyalist area, 1972. We were living in a loyalist area, two o'clock, banging the door. My daddy's half asleep, walking down the stairs. They answered, went, hold on, what's going on? He slowly went back upstairs, looked outside the window, and there was a man standing at the foot of the it the path about 10 feet from the house pointing a Luger pistol at the door waiting for my dad to answer it so that was a real sliding doors moment for me I often think about this we were a, we are a very very working class family there were seven kids and I, I'm we're the youngest I have a twin brother so we're the youngest so we're we're the babbies even though I'm far from a babby now but I often wonder how our lives would have turned out if my daddy had opened that door so it just Something exploded in me that day and I became aware and I started reading the news, listening, watching TV, reading the news, reading newspapers, watching the news. I think it was that incident that spurred, that made me aware, made me awake and is why I'm a crime reporter today. I might just dig into that a touch more just for a, a number of reasons. Uh, uh, my, my father's from Derry, my family are all from Derry and I did my dissertation at university about journalistic independence in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. So I found that always really interesting. So I was always circling the drain of journalism myself in a little way. But um, I, I do, one thing that always strikes me with the North is in situations like that, which are frankly traumatic they are traumatic to a young mind in one way or another my old man went through uh, bloody sunday and Derry in 72 and was there for that period and he saw people in his class hive off join the ira and or or, or in uh, later in the troubles or that albeit a less beaten path was for some nationalists to to join the police although that obviously that was a lot more fraught what what drew you then to journalism rather than I guess, any number of other parts, because you, you've always seemingly had a very strong interest in policing and, and the law. You know, was was law, for example, uh, ever a, an option that you considered or anything like that? Or was it always telling those stories? Uh, no, it was the only thing I was good in school. I was good at languages and I was good at English. I wasn't very good at science or anything like that. And, you know, because we went the northern system, we didn't do leaving cert, we did A-levels. So you do three subjects. And I was very lucky in that, I did Italian, French and English and I was very good at Italian and French. I went on to study Italian and French at university and I got my English. So I, I always knew that I was going to be, I always knew, I'd say from, well, you know, 
12, 13, 14, I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. But that, that you know, the attempted murder, it, it did have an effect, a massive effect on my life and my whole family's life. But it's, as I said, there's no, I have no doubt that's why I'm a journalist today. But I... I, I, I just became really, really interested in news because I was living in a place where people were getting shot every day of the week. So you read the news, you watch the news, you listen to the news every hour just to see if there's anybody in your area or who have there been any bombs and where you live or whatever. You know what I mean? So it, it, it starts to close in on you and it takes over your life. So the natural outlet for me was, and I read a lot when I was a kid, and I just think watching that all the president's men hearing that about my dad watching the news and i just decided i want to be a journalist and it was just a sort of marriage made in heaven for me just it just all came together and I, you know i'm very lucky to have but i often wonder like we would have been financially bereft if my father had been murdered you mean totally you know all my family they were first in our generation our family my generation were the first to go to a university i, I would say you know a single mother seven kids living in you know being very very extremely working class we would have been ghosted none of us would have go to university so yeah it's hard to underestimate those 10 seconds how they i think they affected our lives it's it's just on the back of what you said it's funny you mentioned the the film all the president's men and then the novel I, many years after you'd seen it i watched the movie but it had a profound effect on me as well and it really encapsulates like what it is to be a journalist i think there's a scene in it where um i'm gonna get this wrong but woodward or bernstein gets somebody on the record and they're almost in shock that he's off he's just after saying oh my god like and and it's that feeling of i've got the scoop i've just that i've just broken that big story like um like it really it really captures that that feeling and like that that uh like that's that's what the buzz the buzz that you get from getting a scoop like that's that's what journalism is all about for me and probably for you too mick Oh, absolutely, and I and I do want to talk about it more, but just just to answer your question, Kieran, for me, crime reporting or law enforcement is journalism at its purest because we do stuff every day where people are not supposed to tell us things. Well, I'm talking about you know people in law enforcement. I'm talking about criminals. I'm talking about you know paramilitaries. None of these people are supposed to talk to us. Paul and I have to persuade people every day to talk to us. And it is, I think it is the, the hardest challenge in journalism because not to uh, uh, piss on any of my, our, our other colleagues, but there are other beats where, you know, it's qu quite okay to talk to journalists and you can be seen with your contacts. Paul and I, I know I could be standing, Paul and I could be in court together and Paul's best contact would come in and I wouldn't have a clue. And, and likewise, because we just, we are just, that's, that's our DNA just to protect our sources. So there is a tremendous challenge in journal in crime journalism i find it's the it's the hardest and it's the most rewarding we'll come back i think to your particular route um you know uh, what papers you work for etc a, a little later but just on that point i'm keen to get across to people potentially people who have an interest in journalism at a younger age or are looking to get into it maybe even mid-career what softer skills i guess do you need do you think are important to make a successful journalist like say for example you're talking about communication you're talking about the the ability to build networks in a in a kind of more abstract way i don't know if anything particularly jumps to mind that is useful i'd like paul to close his ears for a minute he's got the, he's got the best phone manner i've ever heard of any journalist and that's a really really important skill because journalists this was said to me when i started off reporters like us were effectively salespeople. we have to try and convince someone to talk to us and remember, we're contacting people in the 
hardest of times when they've lost people and they've suffered trauma. So I would definitely consider, and I, somebody said to me years ago, reporters like us should go on sales courses because we have to learn how to talk to people properly. So Paul, Paul's very lucky. He's got that uh, great phone sense. You, you definitely have to know, you have to be very empathetic and you have to have, I think you have to have very strong emotional intelligence. I'm not going to say who it is, but I remember, oh, it was 20, 28 years ago, there was a, someone was murdered and I was covering the funeral. It was up north and I was covering the funeral and a very well-known journalist. It was very quiet in the graveyard. We were at the graveyard. The, the family let the media at the graveyard. It was a high profile killer. And I remember a, a, a very high profile journalist walking along, talking extremely loudly into his mobile phone, 15 feet from the family. And I, I won't say who he is, not to embarrass him, but I just thought that was it. And I was only, I was 27, 28, so I was just a kid, you know. I thought, Jesus Christ, mate, what are you at? So you have to have empathy, you have to have emotional intelligence, and you have to have cop on, and you have to be, I think you have to be very good with people. You don't have to be a good talker because <clears throat> sometimes silence is the best tactic you can have. There's another journalist I know who, um, he has a great tactic. He just goes quiet when he's talking to you. And you fill the vacuum now the second time he did it with me i just stayed quiet and the silence between us was on the phone it lasted about three minutes and it was excruciating but he gave in so you know it was a bit of a one-trick pony but it's a good strategy to have so there are plenty of skills that i think journalists need and paul's going to tell me what other ones we should have i don't know if this is a skill but it's i think you have to have an innate hunger in you if if I, I i i think if you're hungry that's half the battle like if you really want it you know i i like i can only speak from my own personal experience but i i i came into national news i was very lucky i came into the world of national newspapers with relatively no experience and and i i i could have very easily have been booted out the door but i kept my foot in the door and i was determined and to a certain degree i kind of said i'm not going anywhere and i pushed and i pushed and i pushed and i had that hunger and desire to learn and thankfully the right people picked up on that like michael here and lifted me up and get and i and i got i i gained those skills over time so i think if you have that hunger and that drive like that's half the battle um because yeah, but paul you had the you know sorry to interrupt you you had everything you needed you had the whole toolkit well, thank you, but I, I think I think you have to I think you have to want it. Like if you're if you're getting up in the morning and you don't want to get a story, if you know I, I'm going to go and doorstep that person, I'm going to get that scoop, I'm going to get that line. You have to really, really want it to be a, to be a good journalist. I think. Yeah, and I'd also say you know if you're a, a crime reporter or a specialist, you know, environmentalism, whatever politics, I think you have to be more than slightly obsessive about your field. You have to know everything about it because you'll never know. When that one small nugget that you have in your brain will get you a story. I'll give you a perfect example. Years and years ago, I was talking to a lad, a, a guard, and he told me about a, a raid where on a place where guards found crack cocaine. And I was going, oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Nice wee Sunday story. You know, they found crack cocaine. And he went, yeah, yeah, it was a factory, right? I went, oh, yeah, that's no problem. And I was driving, and it was like one of those things you see in the movie. Literally a minute later, I sort of pressed on the brakes and rang him back and said, did you say a crack factory? Yeah, it's the first one in Ireland. So, and, and we got a great splash out of it. But so, you know, you know, in other words, you have to have your antennae the whole time. And when he said crack factory, I knew that it was the first in Ireland because I'd been covering it so long. So you have, you really, 
have to know your shit. Pardon my language, but you really, and you have to really, really drill down. So I cover guards, but I also cover the defence forces. Most crime reporters do defence as well. So I have to know about defence and I have to have very high knowledge of crime and defence. And I think you need, you need to be, you need to have that level of knowledge if you want to be a specialist. And just on that uh, specialism point, you know, you two are without blowing your own trumpets. By the way, I made a note of that after ten minutes mixed compliment to Paul, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cut that as a clip. Uh just just you know, what what's rare I, is beautiful. I, I was as hacked. I <laughs> um but obviously crime, look, it, it's one of the most important beats out there. It's one of the most potentially fraught. It's one of the ones that involves confidence. It ones uh, it involves, you know, meticulousness. What what drew you to crime initially? Uh, was it just happenstance that someone was like, "Hey, this guy's leaving"? You know, you, you'd be a good fit for this, or was it always a drive that you were wanting to move into that area? Paul, I might come to you first. Well, I I fell into it. Uh, I thought that I wanted to be a political correspondent. I thought that I was interested in politics, um, but I soon realised I wasn't. <laughs> um, no, like when I when I when I got the job in the Star and and basically through mixed influence and through having to work in the world of crime um i i have forced myself into it but i i think inevitably this happens that you you i mean it's just such an interesting subject and i mean it like it, it, it it's fascinating just how the justice system works how the guards work the world of gangland all of it, it, it and and i just as mick says you, you have to kind of learn your subject and i kind of just became uh, engrossed in it and and now i can't i can't imagine doing anything else i think um and it's the most interesting and the most rewarding uh of all the fields that you could work in really i think um what was the second part of that question that <laughs> gone off on the tangent no no it was just a general um what what brought you into it and and i guess the the corollary of it is what you get from it which i think you've given a, a reasonably good insight into yeah already. i think it, 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 like it's just the most exciting and and the most dynamic and um like you were asking about skills earlier i think another skill although mick doesn't have this skill uh is patience Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> the score settling pod um if if you have if 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 you have patience in this game which i often don't have no but but if if you can just train yourself like if you're doing stakeouts in particular or you know if you're really determined to get something if you just have the patience to sit with it and then you have the confidence that you're that it's going to work out it will work out if that makes any sense at all but like it it's so it's just so rewarding when you get that that scoop or that line um and you never know every day is different like in the world of politics it's just so samey i don't know offense to any political correspondence but it's it's just not half as it oh let, let's offend it's just, let's it's offend just them. let's offend them the a lot. truth is it's just not half as interesting no and it would be fair patience i, I no I, I i don't have patience but i do have patience and i think paul's right there are murder cases i've been at i've stayed outside 12 hours everybody else is gone and i said i'm not going until i get what i need and you just stay and you invariably get it. But what's interesting is because I did politics at uni as well and you get politics in crime. You, you know, crime is inherently political. How you police, how you, you know, dole out justice, this is all political stuff, but it's without all the, <laughs> without all the boring stuff, without being too facetious about things. Mick, sorry, I realised we skirted slightly over your a bit of background, how you came into things. So obviously you were based up in the North initially, is that right? So I always knew effectively 
the only other thing I really considered doing was being an interpreter. And I very nearly did that after college, but I, I, I stuck with being a journalist and I, and I did the journalism course. So I did Italian French University on the recommendation of Dominic Cunningham, who was then in the Northern Bureau of the Irish Independent. He said, if you want to be a journalist, study languages. And luckily, it's what I was good at. So I did that. Did a postgrad in Strathclyde uh, in Glasgow in 1993-94, went back to Belfast, started freelancing for the Irish News and I worked there and I went away and worked for a local paper for a year and a half, came back, got staffed up and then I, through Hills and Hunts, I ended up in Dublin where I became Dublin correspondent for the Irish News in 1997 and that was a pivotal time because it was about the peace process and I, you know, when you're a correspondent for the Irish News, they got you to do politics, but you also did security, and you got a lot of you spoke to a lot of Republicans. So I sort of fell into the what we called security, which was sort of po- political violence. If you want to, you know, it was all about there was decommission and all that sort of stuff. So I started making contacts, and I had a built up a good reputation, and I built up a good knowledge base in that you know discrete area of political violence, and so that sort of was that started the ball rolling, and then I went to the Star, and from day one. I, I was I was doing crime from day one, and that was twenty three years ago this month. Excellent, yeah, wow, isn't that that's great? And um, you know, we we've touched on it, I suppose, briefly already. But if if there were another subject that you would be drawn to uh, in in journalism, I, I guess, Paul, you, you were saying this is kind of your beat now and forever. But is there anything else that you might think? You know what? We might specialize in something else, or maybe even go a touch broader. The, the honest answer is no but to, to expand upon what you asked me about like what you get out of it like apart apart from just as i said it's a bit about it being exciting um it's only when i when i started to kind of um, make contact with families who you know lost loved ones to murder um or victims of sexual abuse and when you have given them a platform in which to tell their story there's a reward in that um, and a feeling of satisfaction that, you know, you've highlighted something important. Um, and I know that's a bit cliche and cheesy, but th- th- I've had a, a, the fortune of interviewing a couple of people over the years now where I feel, you know, that was an important story and I'm glad that we highlighted it. Um, and, and for me, that's the most rewarding part of the job. There are part, There are times when this job can really get to you. And you can sort of say, I want to pack it in and I want to do something else. But it, you have to remind yourself of the days when you feel like you, you wrote something important. There's, there are many, many non-important things that we that we end up writing about at times. I'll admit that. Uh, not every story is going to be uh, memorable and or Pulitzer Prize worthy or whatever you want to you know call it. But um, there are days when you feel like that was an important piece of journalism. Uh, and that's what kind of keeps you going and you just have to remind yourself of that when you get the bad days but no i i i can't even begin to imagine what else i'd be doing <laughs> well paul paul was telling me off air he's got a, a big interest in environmentalism because he recycles all his stories very good. Fuck well, you. listen. I think we're I think we're one all in the uh, in the score settling stakes here, so we're we're all good today. Um, just to come on to another aspect of the job, because you know, uh, my background initially was was kind of in sport and more new stuff, and then when I moved over here, obviously there's a far more focus on on crime. And your, I mean, I was bumping up against aspects of 
Dublin of Ireland that uh, I wouldn't have covered so much before. In terms of the danger element of the job, if we, if we can call that, is that something that's on your mind? How much has that affected your life and career? I, uh, I might come to you first with this, Mick. Uh, uh, yes, it, it's everywhere. When I'm writing a story, I consider forefront of my of my thought process is am I going to get sued? But I'm also thinking about my own personal safety. It's a very dangerous job. I've spoken about this. I've received the guard news of a death threat. So it's called the GIM, the, the Guard Information Message. And I was given that 2017 when the guards had information there was a th- serious threat to your life. And it's a very lonely uh, uh, existence for a while. I don't think that the threat is live anymore. But for six months, it was really, really, really grim. So that that was bad. Um, and when I'm, and it did affect me. And, you know, the older you get, like I've done this for 30 years and you can't, it does weigh you down. And you do get into an awful lot of instances. I'm, I'm not even talking about, you know, say threats from gangsters. I'm talking about, you know, people do feel as if you can have carte blanche against journalists, against reporters, that you can do what you want, you can say what you want. If you ever stand outside the CCJ in Dublin, or the main courts complex, the photographers get an awful time. It's just people, is, you know, people spit on them and everything and give them grief. So people do think that, you know, in a way, doing things just doesn't really count. And there's definitely been a, a diminution of respect for media. And that's fine. That's no problem. But people are much more aggressive. So uh, my own safety is something I, I do uh, consider, along with legal threats. You know, it's one of my top two issues that I on every story, basically. And, uh, you know, going to do doorsteps, driving into certain areas. I've said this before, you know, I will always, you know, move the car so they're facing out of the street so it can make a quick getaway rather than facing in, you know, various things like that. So I think every journalist, every reporter has to look after their own safety because nobody else will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've been in a few hairy situations. I, I've not had anything, thankfully, on that level, the level that you have, Mick. Um, I, 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 we've talked about this before, but the stress of having a, a threat on your life, I can't imagine that. Um but like just every day when you do this job, you become conscious of the things that you write and the places that you go. Could this potentially lead to uh, putting myself in danger? Um, I'm going to speak in more general terms, but I had I had something happen to me that was uh, not pleasant. I'll just put it that way. Um, I don't really want to give it too much credence because it, it thankfully sorted itself out but it it was uh something as a result of doing this job uh i i was put in a position where i was being harassed to a degree and look everybody has the right to free speech and to say have their say but when it goes that little extra step further and uh, someone is attacking you personally uh it does make it does make you uh, reassess things um and and as Mick says, it's a very lonely experience. Uh, you can explain it to your superiors and people you work with, and they might understand it to a degree, but no one really understands it because they, unless they're going through it themselves. Um, and it's just, so you know, I try to remind myself when things like that happen, like this is a job, and it should only be a job uh, if it starts affecting your personal life. In that respect, um, it does make you consider at times you know should it be bleeding into your personal life um but you kind of have to accept when you're writing about very sensitive subjects 
and very dangerous people at times uh that you're putting yourself in the in a potential position to uh to be threatened or to be harassed or whatever so we have to have a thick skin i'm not saying it didn't bother me it bothered me but i have to i was addressed and and have to move on and i'm sure it'll happen again that's the inevitability of what happens when you work in crime journalism i suppose and just to expand on this a bit i'm further down the road than paul i always say this you know a guy I used to work with Pat O'Connell in the, in the Sunday Tribune or the Sunday World now you know I'm 10 years ahead of him he's 10 years ahead of Paul he, Pat had Paul's job before him um, so I'm further down the road and I must say this with a shadow of a doubt my job has affected me I'm going to say my mental health but it has made me a darker person it made me a sadder person because when you think about it I've covered a thousand deaths you know, 700, 800 homicides, plane crashes, horrible things that, and we hear things that, you know, people in the real world, shall we say, don't have, they can turn over the page. We have to be in court for the rape victim or we have to be in court hearing about child abuse or, you know, when child abuse material sometimes is played in court, you know, all that sort of stuff. So all those things have made me a darker person. They they have made my life darker and I completely admit that. But I'm 52 now, so... I won't be doing anything else anytime soon. And what, you know, I get a huge amount out of it. It's fantastic talking to people and one-on-one relationships, even knocking on doors. I really, really enjoy that. But there are serious negatives for this job and it has made my life, definitely made my life darker. And I often wonder, as I said, you know, I did consider being an interpreter in Italian. And I've often, you know, in really bad days when it's hitting the fan, I was going, what the hell am I doing? I could be living in Milan, interpreting and doing 500 quid a day and living in the sun and having lovely limoncelli and stuff. What am I doing standing outside this geezer's house? But the job, it's the job and I love it. But, you know, there are moments when you go, I could have completely had a different life. But it is interesting because you know and and i think the the gravity of what you both are saying is is clear for all to all to hear but it it's such an important job and it, to tell people's stories and to be the mediator as you know media uh, suggests between the audience and between stories that need to be heard so on behalf of our audience and on behalf of myself i'd like to say thank you very much for for the work you do and i'm sure as we've all experienced thankfully through journalism at, at some stage someone really giving you a heartfelt thank you from uh you know a victim's family or whoever it might be is it is really really touching it is really uh it, it does make all of the other stuff worthwhile do you think that's that's it, one of the best things that that is honestly one of the best things when you tell a victim story and a perfect example is when we write about uh sex offenders and the victim comes to us and says, listen, he can't be named. Can you try and get him named? And we do. I mean, there are various things we can do or we give them advice because they want, as I always say, the abuse happens in private and they want the justice to be in public. And it's a tremendously important thing that we do. And the number of victims who said, you really helped me with that. So it means a lot. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because I've said this to friends before, it's jobs like a drug like when it when it's amazing it's really 
it, it, it can't be better in my eyes like I, i've done the whole communication stuff before and don't get me wrong you know it works on interesting stuff but it never ever ever touched the the thrill that this job can give you when when things go well and when you are telling really interesting stories plus the other big thing which people don't really know we know secrets we know things before mm. every, practically everybody else in the country knows and it's brilliant knowing things. Yeah, it's it, it, it's not it, it's not all serious and dreary though. I mean, there are the, you, you do have great fun in the job. There's there's no job quite like it in terms of the crack that you can have as well. Like I think one good story that we kind of touched on the last day. I think we should talk about a bit more detail because both Mick and I experienced it, and we've had we like we very rare that we would ever go away together on a job in this country, let alone in another one. Well, <laughs> well, I just think this is good crack because it it really shows like how the job can be like you know so random like so like this time last year the story broke about the sanctions against the kinahan cartel and somehow we managed to swing a gig uh away to spain the two of us <laughs> with photographer mick o'neill um now i think the original plan was to divide and conquer uh we were going but but you know, look, I mean, there were reasons why we went together uh, and we were basically going to hit all of the properties uh, that were that the American government, the U.S. authorities had said were associated with the Kinahans uh, in, in Spain. And we were going to do like several pieces of this is Daniel Kinahan's old haunt. This is Christie's old haunt. This is um, there was a couple of other properties and businesses associated with them. Uh, so, so Mick, I don't know when you want to stop me here, but Mick got very excited shall we say about the prospect of going away and he said we better get we need to get flights booked and uh we may or may not have booked flights to the wrong airport <laughs> <laughs> well no it wasn't the wrong airport it was it was it was um <clears throat> no there's never a wrong airport it was basically th- th- i wanted us to get there very quickly right so i decided right isn't we're it was obviously my the first flight. Out. It was the first flight out. Now, now it was we wanted to go to Marbella because that's you know the Costa del Sol or Andalusia as Healy probably calls it. We wanted to go down there, right? Now the only flight we could get was Alicante, which is in the Costa Brava. It's Costa Brava, or Costa Torada. I think Costa Brava, and it was eight hours north. And I said, I don't give two shiny whatevers. We're getting on that plane. We're hiring a car and we're driving down to Marbella, and we did. Now Paul Paul wasn't overly impressed with that. What ensued was a eight or nine hour road trip <laughs> across mainland Spain. <laughs> and we've got the exclusive footage here today. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, that, that must have been really interesting though, the, the, the whole trip. What did you get out of it? Oh, like it was good. Obviously it was good crack and good banter going the three of us in the car, but we were also under serious fucking pressure because we realized like we actually have to get a story. We have to come home with a story. And, you know, the Kinahans were not in Spain anymore. So what exactly were we over there to get? Um, we had to get something. And I think uh, maybe it was the eight or nine hour drive. But by the time we got to Marbella and we tracked down and found one of the properties that had been named in the US sanctions, uh, maybe we weren't fully thinking straight. That's all I can say in my defense to this. But uh, we discovered this property, which was associated with Christy Kinahan. And we were basically preparing a video package where Mick, I can recall, said something to the effect of this is 
the alleged headquarters of Christy Kinnan Sr. Now, in his, no, we didn't. in his defense... We didn't say alleged. Well, you didn't. You actually just flat out said that it was. The, <laughs> in, in his defense, um, the American government announced this exact address as... So it would be like, Kieran, or, you know, if tomorrow your full address was published to the world to see um and and it and it was you know it's it's this is christy kinahan's address um so we we did that and we went back then the next morning to to scope it out again and to do more photographs of it and as we did a drive-by of the property this man walks out now we thought it was empty abandoned you know naturally because obviously kinahan hadn't been there in years this bloke walks out we all get the shock of our lives holy shit there's somebody there's somebody in the fucking place so we drive off really fucking quickly and mick o'neill is trying to get a photograph of this individual and we get kind of a grainy shot of this man in a suit and again i blame this on lack of sleep and the long drive we all kind of said could that be a kinahan <laughs> so um we then ended up essentially staking out this property for several hours while waiting for this individual to get a proper photograph of him and hours and hours and hours passed in the baking hot heat 30 degrees sitting in a car with no air conditioning and mick uh mick eventually had enough (laughs) and decided that he would go off on a little walkabout and we didn't uh, we didn't hear from him for a little while, and he, but he came as we alluded to in the previous pod. He did come back with McDonald's, so all was forgiven. But we got photographs of this individual, and we couldn't work out for the life of us who the fuck he was. Who is this man? Who is yeah, this person? We, we, uh, now, in fairness, we were thinking he he could be a relation of a Kenyan because there was, there a, was a, a resemblance. Resemblance, but then like we're just like we couldn't figure out who he was. So push came to shove and you said, right, fuck it. We're just going to have to knock on the bloody door. <laughs> and uh, I, this is this is where Michael's skills come into the fore because uh, to his credit, uh, we went up and we knocked on the door and Mick spoke to this man in Spanish. Uh, and he was actually a, a Spanish uh, resident. And I think that got us the in because... Uh, he appreciated the fact that we were speaking to him in his native tongue. Um, but as the, the, the twist turned out, uh, he was uh, not a Kinahan. He was a perfectly normal uh, member of society. But more than that, he was a local councillor. So like a well-known political figure in the area. And he was a lawyer. So thank God we knocked on that door because we could have ended up alleging that this poor man's home was once the headquarters of the Kinahan cartel. <laughs> Uh, but as it turned out, like, we're not the ones that alleged that it was the American government that had placed his address for the world to see. But we ended up getting the story we never anticipated that we would ever get. And it was a cracker of a story. This guy posed for photographs in his mansion with his pool and was totally dumbfounded that the American government had named his property uh, as being associated with the Kinahan cartel. So we got a great cracker of a yarn out of it and a funny story. And and that always proves the point. And that's one thing we say in the start. You always you always go because you always get something when you go. Now, the funny thing is we had done a video the day before we con- confronted this geezer. Uh, and it was all about <laughs> this, 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 uh, 
this mansion behind us. It just looks like any other house here in, in the Costa del Sol. But we know there's a dark secret behind it because that's where the Kenan cartel was based <laughs> for several years. And it was that fella and he was inside on his Instagram worrying about what he was going to have for his dinner, wasn't he? Yeah, so we'd worked out because we looked up his Instagram later. Uh, we'd worked out that around about the time that we were filming this video saying that this this has a dark secret and it was the headquarters of the Kinnans, he had posted a photograph of like a salad or something. Or No, it was a cheese board. That's where it was. He was fixing a cheese board in his kitchen, like, you know, unbeknownst to him, like what's going on outside. But he got a laugh out of that. But we were at the same time, we were also sitting outside going, Jesus, lads, what are we going to do? Are we going to knock? Are we going, ah, God, it's a bit dangerous. If it just says again, and what's going to happen? He's in working and worrying about his cheese board. We were sitting outside going, well, we'll do this. Well, we'll do this, lads. Anyway, but that's, that, yeah, that is, that, Paul's absolutely, that is the beauty of journalism. It there wasn't the story we times, went to get, but it but it was no. a, it was a very f- amusing and and great story like yeah and it just goes to show you it's you know 99% slow slow and then 1% fast speed and terror and it, you know but we we usually get there in the end i think the most terrifying thing about the whole thing is the idea of brie in 30 degrees and my <laughs> weather one thing i i was quite interested to know and you guys have covered it a little bit there the the stories that stand out and obviously that one's a very specific type of story are there ones that really stick in your mind in terms of, you know, you just think not only was that a really important story, we did a we did a fantastic job with it. I mean, individually, it doesn't just have to be with the star or wherever it might be. Are there any particular cases you may have covered, any particular trials, any particular stories you may have told? I'll talk about this one. It was Paul knows I, I got an award in 2017 Crime Reporter of the Year and one of the Stories we we got it for it was well there was a couple of one we got pictures of Chris Kinnan in Hong Kong, um, and then the, another one we did was if you remember the London Bridge terror attack I was that happened on the Saturday night, and on the Sunday morning I was at home going Jesus isn't that terrible and someone contacted me and said listen there's an Irish link to, the, to one of those fellas because they were shot dead do you remember the attackers were shot dead one of those attackers had our, all they could say was had Irish ID on them and I went Jesus. So I got, you know, it was about half nine in the morning and I didn't get it confirmed until about eight o'clock that night. And he did. He, he lived in Ireland and, you know, the whole story emerged. So we we broke that. And it was it, it was it was uh, Sunday for Monday. So it appeared in the Monday and it was a bank holiday. I always remember it was a bank holiday. And it was a pretty massive story because we were the only ones to get the Irish link and, you know, dominated everywhere. Anyway, RTE lifted it as is their want. And I went, all right, OK, they've lifted it. That's grand. It happens. And then Reuters lifted it from RTE and credited RTE. So I was in the newsroom watching Reuters. Uh, it was on Sky. RT, Reuters were crediting RTE for my story. So I was going, absolutely, do lally. But that happens. But the, what re- I really enjoyed was that maybe eight-hour period when you have a sniff of something and you're doing everything you can to get it confirmed because they knew it was going to be a, a worldwide story. And it, and it did go around the world. But just that sort of eight hours when you know you have something and you're digging away and then you get the confirmation from it. There's no feeling like it. Yeah, um, you have a greater memory than me. Uh, so many of them are coming to mind, but no one specifically sticks out. But I would, it, this is a bit of a kind of a, maybe it might seem like a cop-out answer. Like there are exclusive stories that I have gotten that I've been proud of. But I think the most profound, and maybe it's because it's the most recent and the longest thing that I've covered um, is actually the the Hutch trial. And I think for me, it's just like Michael has sat through a couple of trials in their entirety. That is the first time in my career that I have sat, okay, not every day, but almost every single day of a massive, massive trial that was the biggest story. And um, 
for me like it, I, I I just kind of it, it probably will always stick in my memory covering that trial and doing this podcast and I'm just proud of it and uh, like I've been I've enjoyed sitting in it the experience of it yeah and just on the hot shot because you know a lot of people will have tuned into this pod specifically for that initially at least what did you get from that like did, did you sort of you know now you've had a bit of distance between it was there anything in particular you took from it kind of in a I, I guess a a professional sense was there things where you thought you know we did that really well we did that less well etc <laughs> i think this podcast allowed me to open the door into another form of journalism that i didn't that i've never worked in before uh, and, and to be able to actually discuss what i've seen in detail in the trial every day uh, i don't want to criticize print journalism it obviously has its merits but it has its limitations in terms of there's only so much of the trial that you can report and it, things are cut but we could we got to sit here every day and really inform people of every minute of every second but also the feet like because it was a special criminal court trial you had a bit of freedom to talk about things like just what it feels like the atmosphere in the room people's body language stuff like that so i've never i've never done that kind of reporting before i've never you know it was just a new medium for me so that that for me professionally was was a real thrill to be able to kind of inform on it in a new in a new platform and i think we did build a bit of an audience so we i mean we had people contacting us who were saying that they were actually getting their information from from this podcast they weren't necessarily maybe uh, reading about it although we want people to continue to read newspapers but people were coming here first and so that was a real thrill that we were able to inform people in in that way and it has been it's it's become a new form for me as well a new form of journalism it, it has helped me you know really one of the things i like about this pod is that we contextualize things and explain and we tell our stories and we i think we educate and entertain at the same time and so the the pod coming from the Hutch trial really has ex- has exploded for me and it has rejuvenated journalism for me, I have to say, because it's, an, it's another form of journalism. Yeah, it's nice to see. It's really nice to see. And um, I, I, that comes, to, uh, comes nice into uh, one of my last two questions here is obviously we're seeing a, a changing media background. Things are constantly shifting. Thankfully, people are interested in stuff like this and longer form discussions and journalism. How have you seen it change over the period that you were here? And and I, I suppose really my question is, are we on the right path or are there things that, you know, potentially worry you about the state of journalism or the state of media in general at the moment in Ireland? What a mi- minefield of a question. You're going to get us fired for that one. Absolute minefield. <laughs> so why don't you tap dance across it and we'll see how we get on. I'll answer that. Journalism has to move and it has to evolve. When I started in journalism long, long time ago, there were largely morning papers, there were evening papers, there was radio and there was TV and Sunday papers and that was it. Now you look and even, you know, I, I had a discussion with somebody a while ago about the word journalist. Oh yeah, it was about Gary Lineker. I consider Gary Lineker a journalist. Some people don't, but I do. And I consider him a broadcaster and a presenter and, you know, all that sort of thing. Journalism has to evolve. See, even people who call themselves citizen journalists, knock yourselves out. Anybody can call themselves a journalist, but very few people can do what Paul and I do. I always call myself, you know, we're reporters because a, a journalist can mean anything from somebody who runs a pod to somebody who corrects my horrible spelling mistakes in the in the star in the mirror or, you know, it can be anything. We're reporters and there'll always, I think there'll always be a need for people like us to go and do the hard slogan and the hard lifting and tell people what's going on. So journalism is, is completely changing and I'm quite cool with that, whatever it is, but there'll always be a need for people like me and Paul. 
God, I hope he's right. I hope he's. I really hope he's right about that. <laughs> yeah, actually, you might stay on the call. I've got a bit of bad news for you both. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I'll give you a short answer. Just I, I'm obviously hopeful for the future. I think through me, new mediums like this, uh, journalism will survive. People are interested in being informed. The fact that people were willing to sit and listen to us for an hour on end talking about the Hutch trial shows that people have an interest in being informed. So clearly, the journalism is not dead. People are still interested. It's just perhaps the medium will change and evolve uh, over time and, and hopefully in 20 years time we'll still be working in it well you will not me <laughs> not for you and anyone who has been interested in uh, the, the Hutch trial listening to it you're, you're more than welcome to edit the pod as well it would save me a lot of work <laughs> um, but listen lads you've been fantastic I, I, I wonder I might just leave you with one question now as I say we we were all at one stage or another interested in journalism. We were, you know, potentially looking at uh, going into it as a career or um, are there any particular things that you would like to pass off to the next generation as your particular pearls of wisdom or, or, like, or really, uh, uh, all right, let, let me start, for example, I came to it quite uh, via a quite circuitous route. I did a few different jobs, kind of circling journalism for a quite a long time. It came about through just emails to people um, who I listened to, who I was interested in, who thankfully gave me a shot. And I once I was in there, I really just, I was a very hungry, as you said, in that sense of just learning and trying to improve. And I didn't have a journalistic background per se in the sense of studying journalism and the like. So I just wonder if, you know, if there's anything that you would, recommend to people who might have an interest in pursuing a job i think i probably maybe already said it in that just be be hungry if you really really want it um you know you'll get it uh you but you have to you have to keep at it you have to work at it um it, 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 it's very very cliche but like I, it's half the battle as i said if you're really really hungry um and and you you also have to meet the right people i mean i was lucky enough to meet the right people the doors opened to me once once i started to meet the right people but as i said it's just, it was the enthusiasm i think i showed um that meant the right people put trust in me and put faith in me so if you really want it you know keep at it that's cliche but it's true i think if you work your yin yangs off you're more or less guaranteed to succeed. And if you don't work your yin-yangs off, you're not going to succeed. I mean, people might not want to hear that because people might want to hear about, well, it's all about nepotism and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anybody in my family. I was a, I'm a working class kid from North Belfast. Absolutely nobody in my family worked in any form of media. I think that's the same for you, Paul. Yeah, no, no one ever. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I think we were doing quite okay by ourselves. I will say one final point, just what you're saying about, you know, maybe grief and stuff. I do think that an awful lot of people who attack journalists are frustrated journalists. In other words, they wanted to be journalists and they, they never made it or it never happened for them. And they sort of vicariously attack us online for that. But look, just as I said, if you want it, work hard for it and you'll get it. Fair play. And go direct. People always uh, respect people getting emails or getting in touch via email, etc., yeah. etc. Et Listen, lads, thank you so much for your time. Um, I realise... We have another part to do, but I really appreciate you guys giving us a little look back and I'm sure people have uh, got a lot out of it. So thanks again and uh, we'll speak soon.